Hello and welcome to The Things You Thought You Knew, the A-Level Philosophy Podcast. Today I'm joined by Matt Lang. Hi, Matt. Hiya. So, Matt, would you like to quickly explain what got you into philosophy, what you're doing at the moment? So, I'm currently a teacher at one college in Ipswich. I've been teaching philosophy and politics there for coming up for a, a decade, about, I think we're in my ninth year there now. And in terms of my, I suppose, philosophy journey, started as I'm sure a lot of the listeners and hopefully those that are going to engage with this will with studying religious studies at a level because my, my school at the time didn't offer philosophy it was the philosophy theology bit of that which really caught my attention I then went to university where I studied a philosophy and politics degree and then kind of managed to fool my way fresh out of teacher training into teaching at an A-level college on a philosophy and politics courses which was my dream job when I'd started wanting to teach so I've been very lucky and haven't really moved anywhere in since. So yeah, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much my philosophy journey is uh, A level university teaching. That's that's brilliant. And then just briefly, just because just out of interest, what's your favourite like areas of philosophy? It's not related to what we're talking about today, but just because ah, it's that's interesting. Fine. Um, so I really like the ethics stuff to teach. As a teacher, I like the ethics stuff. Um, I think because especially in the first year. It's a slightly more familiar ground and discussable than the epistemology, which can sometimes be a little bit overbearing um, and a little bit scary. But I really like just the way it gets you to, you can really push the boat with some hypothetical situations. And personally, I'm really interested in theology as an area of philosophy. So where the where theology as the religious discipline and where it overlaps with philosophy and also um, philosophical linguistics and grammatical acquisition. So the works of Chomsky and Wittgenstein and Ayer and Flew on kind of meaning of language and where language emerges from, but from a philosophical, not a grammatical domain. Right, and as you were saying earlier, that's not really on the course that much philosophy of language. It comes up briefly, but it's not a major. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's mentioned a little bit in metaethics. You get a little bit of taste of it in metaethics with the verification principle. And it's mentioned a little bit when you do philosophy in the philosophy of religion dynamics, when you look a little bit again at AR on language. So it's not really an A-level course. I personally would love it to be, but it's not at the moment. But it certainly is something that you hit quite early on in first year, most first year university courses, when you bring in uh, also philosophical symbolism and kind of arg and lo logical analysis and logical writing and kind of ways of presenting arguments through symbolism and stuff like that, which is quite interesting. Right, yeah, no, 100%. So today we're going to be looking at utilitarianism. Uh, we're going to be discussing three different views on utilitarianism. We're going to look at Bentham's utility, utility calculus, Mill's higher and lower pleasures, and then preference utilitarianism. Yep. So starting with Bentham's quantitative hedonistic utilitarianism, do you want to briefly break down what those three different stages are? Yeah, so um, in terms of understanding uh, Bentham's quantitative hedonistic utilitarianism, it's kind of important, um, really, at the crux of that is start at the end with um, utilitarianism. And obviously that's based around this idea of the principle of utility, which kind of, particularly for Bentham and Mill, uh, underlines that principle. When we get onto preference, it, it deviates slightly. But in, in essence, what it's looking at there is what is utility, what is usefulness, for us and that is then where you kind of get it overlapped with the hedonistic element or as Bentham to paraphrase badly puts it mankind is under two masters pleasure and pain and the argument there is that we are governed by these two sovereign principles of we we like pleasure and we don't like pain 
and therefore what is good for us is to abide by those two measures so therefore you get the hedonistic and you get the utilitarianism and of course the quantitative bit which is what marks bentham as slightly different from other utilitarians is that he says we can measure the pleasure and this of course is where you then get into his hedonistic calculus or utility calculus or however it's there are multiple ways it can be referred to the root of which being it is possible to measure how much pleasure something produces. Therefore, we can work out whether or not that action is better or worse morally than another action, because we should always seek to benefit the general populace to pro provide utility by maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people. Right. Which, and yeah. Yeah, and um, so hedonism uh, comes from the Greek word for pleasure, which was hedon. Uh, so that's a bit where the word comes from. It's a bit of a confusing word because you, you look at it and you think, where do you get that from? But it's, it's the Greek word for pleasure is where it comes from. Yeah. So Bentham, uh, again, qualitative, quantitative even, utilitarianism. So he didn't form judgment about the value of the actions that made people happy or sad. His whole point was, again, two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. Um, and we ought to do what makes us experience pleasure and avoid pain so back at the time when bentham was around uh, the 1800s homosexuality and homosexual relationships were uh, criminal criminalized and he argued a lot to decriminalize homosexuality because he argued that it doesn't matter what makes people happy or sad the whole point is we want to seek what makes us happy yep. so yep. again you mentioned earlier bentham's quantitative quantitative hedonistic utilitarianism we yeah. can now refer to that as the utility calculus we don't need to say that whole, whole long spiel yeah. Anymore. <laughs> yeah yeah so do you want to quickly explain the utility utility calculus yeah so um in essence what it does is it asks that we um consider the actions available to us again bearing in mind bentham was an act utilitarian so therefore we are doing this on an act by act basis it's not universalized it's not whilst the underlying principle is universalized actually what we're looking at here is in this scenario which act should i do and bentham provides a seven step or seven element formula or calculation and says look consider these seven factors and the action or the option which is going to maximize happiness based on these seven which he believes you can calculate and that possibly leads to one of the major problems with this which no doubt Ryan and I can bring up later on, but the idea here would be, okay, so you calculate the pleasure and whichever one produces the most pleasure units, as it were, is the action you should do. And um, this is where many, many, um, many people are probably taught the seven factors. And there's, unfortunately they're written different ways at different times. Actually at our college, we have actually, uh, we have an acronym for it, which our students hate and love at the same time, which is, um, I don't care really, for philosophy and ethics. And that's because it's intensity, duration, certainty, remoteness, uh, fecundity, sometimes called fertility. Um, you've then got the purity and then the extent. And if to kind of underpin those a little bit more, you've got your intensity, which is how strong is the pleasure. You've got your duration, how long is it gonna last for? You've got your certainty, which is how likely is it actually to produce pleasure? You've got remoteness. Now, this is a bit of a strange one and one that I find students kind of struggle with a bit. This is kind of how near or far in terms of time is the pleasure going to occur. 
Uh, you've then got the fecundity or the fertility, which is what is the chance of reproduction. And that's the way I kind of think of that is that if you produce, do something which causes pleasure for A, B and C, is are they then going to be able to go on and produce pleasure for D, E and F and so on? So how, how far is the reach? How likely is it to continue producing pleasures for you, for others, etc.? You've then got your purity. That's how free from pain. So how purely good is it or how happy is it? And then you've got the extent, uh, which is the number of people that are going to be affected by it. And Bentham does list them in order. He doesn't really give much clarity over how they should be worked through, but he kind of suggests we should apply them in turn. Some of them refer to the immediacy, so intensity, duration, certainty, and the others are slightly more longer term and reaching. But effectively, those seven factors, you look at your options, you go, okay, I'm gonna work out which one's gonna produce the most pleasure, does it meet those, which of those maximizes on my criteria scale? Therefore, that is the moral action. It's right. a very brief way, I think, of explaining it, if that, yeah. I don't care really about philosophy or ethics. I've never heard that before. I don't care really for. Really for, okay. The four is the F. The four is the fecundity, the, the fecundity which um, there are, it's often, because fecundity is a funny word to learn, um, there is a nut, and I cannot off the top of my head remember I sometimes reproduction is just used right because because we've got our acronym we just stick to fecundity and students it's a term students learn fecundity means chance of reproduction so yeah I don't care really for philosophy the and is hidden ethics that that's absolutely wonderful I absolutely love that um <laughs> the other... I, I, I'll, give, I'll give credit to my my partner teacher at our college because she, she was the one that originally came up with that and I've just stolen it and lambasted it publicly for everyone. So there we go. <laughs> uh, one thing I'll quickly say is remoteness can also be known as propinqui propinquity. Propinquity, that... yeah. Yeah. So yeah. at first I was a bit confused, but yeah, remoteness is the other word I've got written down. Right. It's propinquity. And the re again, the reason is um, remoteness or propinquity. Um, not, it's not just that propinquity doesn't fit. Um, Again, with fecundity and propinquity, we just found that students got quite confused between those two. And in the balance of the exam, as long as you show an awareness of what those seven mean, and you, if you remoteness and propinquity, I don't think you, the example is not gonna pick you up if you use remoteness instead of propinquity, as far as I'm aware as a teacher. I've never had a student picked up for not using propinquity. Brilliant, okay, yeah. So again, as you said, those are the seven steps and the, these can be sorted into three stages. So the first stage is to look into the value nature of the initial pleasure caused by the action. And that's where intensity, duration, certainty and propinquity come. Then you must find out what likely further effects there are. And that's where you get fecundity and purity. And then you have to look into the number of people that will feel pleasure or pain. And that's where the extent comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's effectively a quick summary of how Bentham's utility calculus works, right? Yeah. So the next uh, theorist for, utilitari for utilitarianism we need to look at is John Stuart Mill. So John Stuart Mill's father was a friend of Jeremy Bentham. He worked for him and they kind of raised John Stuart Mill and taught him, how, taught him the ideals of utilitarianism. However, he had a different idea to Bentham on how you should 
decide what the utilitarianism outcome is? If you want to quickly explain what he thought. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are many areas where Mill differs. I mean, partly that Mill was more of a social reformer. He was quite, he was significantly more, I mean, admittedly, Bentham was a social and prison reformer. Um, but Mill, Mill was far more of what you might call a political reformer. He was very active in political theory as well. Um, and so he took a slightly different approach, um, which is qualitative a slightly more qualitative approach and the main i mean it's not that ben it's not so it's not that mill was abandoning the need to calculate pleasure so much as mill felt that bentham's um straight consideration of all pleasures as equal was potentially flawed and so he presented this qualitative distinction between to some effectively higher what he called higher and lower pleasures and those are kind of the distinctions that he draws um, between those two um, and effectively what he's saying is there are some pleasures which he tends to refer to and identify as pleasures of the intellect or pleasures of the mind which are better and more preferable and desirable than pleasures of the body or the lower pleasures and I believe the quote is something on the lines of it is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig or a beast satisfied and the idea is and this is important that even though Mill was still interested in calculating what would produce the most happiness he did believe that a lower level of higher pleasures were more moral and more valuable and better than a higher level of lower pleasure. So where that qualitative distinction comes in is that if something is a pleasure of the body and that would actually produce a greater, um, if you were to do something and it would produce a greater amount of bodily pleasure or lower pleasure, but you could do something else that would produce higher pleasure but less of it, you should go towards the higher pleasure. And um, this is where it gets a bit weird, but Mill uses the term, and I think it is that competent judges for which he moves those that will have experienced both. And his so his justification is that competent judges will choose the higher pleasures. Um, and I think if it's okay, Ryan, just to bring in here, obviously, um, I don't know if you we wanted to start on Mill's proof at all. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. I think, I think actually it helps to look at Mill's proof to understand this distinction and why competent judges is important. Because obviously, so Mill's proof, just to briefly remind um, ourselves, is the idea that, in, and I'm going to boil it down, that he says that we know happiness is a good because we observe that people desire happiness. Right. Um, and he inductively therefore says that because people all desire their own individual happiness, they also... There is this sense of desiring the aggregate general happiness. Now, the reason I bring that in just quickly, and obviously there's more we could unpack on that, is because I think regarding Mill's higher and lower distinction, it's quite useful to recognise that Mill is all, his utilitarianism is absolutely rooted in the power of empirical observation. And it's all about, we know happiness is a good because we observe it. And therefore, it logically follows that Mill argues that we know higher goods are better, higher pleasures are better, because we observe that people that have the option between both, having experienced both, will choose the higher pleasure. So I think the reason I bring it in is because I think it's important that otherwise that Mill's proof gets a bit distinct from his qualitative, his qualitative utilitarianism, but there is an overlap rooted in that 
the, the, the core empiricism that Mill held as a philosophical kind of principle. And it's, you know, as I said, it's that he says, we know what people desire because we observe it. People desire happiness and almost we can see that if people have ever had experience of higher and lower pleasures, they will choose the higher pleasure, which I think is helps to just tie those two strands together in a way that sometimes can seem quite disparate from each other. No, that, that, that's that's exactly how you'd put it. And then another way you could word it is if you would if you wouldn't give up any amount of A for any amount of B, then sorry, if you wouldn't give up an amount of A for any amount of B, then A is a higher pleasure than B. So if you wouldn't give up the pleasure you receive from being married for any amount of chocolate ice cream, then the pleasure you get from being married is a greater pleasure than chocolate ice cream. So yeah. yeah. So Mill very much believes you can kind of rank pleasures and decide what's the, what's the best and what's the worst. Absolutely. So yeah, Mill is also a hedonistic, hedonistic utilitarianism, utilitarianist even. He yeah. also believes pleasure is the root that we want to find, but he just thinks you need to look at it in a slightly different way. Hedonistic utilitarianism is also referred to as classical utilitarianism, because it's what came first. Yeah. Do you think we're ready to move on to non-hedonistic utilitarianism? Or is there anything um, else you want to discuss? reason why not. Yeah, as we're, we're running through the three, so let's, let's go for it. Okay, so Nozick had an objection to hedonistic utilitarianism, and his objection was what we refer to as the experience machine. So the way this works is he says, if you could get 10 people in a room and you could plug them into a machine, and in this machine you can pre-program the rest of their life so they'll have maximum pleasure and they'll live the best life they can ever live, the people wouldn't want to go into the machine because there's something about humans that means they want to live in the real world. But a utilitarianism would have to force all those people into the machines because then they're going to live a more pleasurable life. Um, but there's something about humanity that makes us not want to do that. So Nozick then goes on to talk about preference-based utilitarianism. Um, if, I, if I just um, jump in, if it's helpful as well, I think it's also important because I, I find as a teacher of this that students sometimes, they get Nozick's experience or pleasure machine, but then making the link between the pleasure machine and Bentham and Mill's utilitarianism is some so what I would say there I think you're absolutely right Ryan but what I'd say there as well is um it's Bentham uh, knows it goes on to argue and um, that it's it's not happiness that so obviously that the root of Bentham and Mill particularly Mill's proof again is that we desire happiness and utilitarianism works if it is a fundamental truth of human nature that happiness is what we all individually and therefore collectively desire and seek. And what Nozick's pleasure machine suggests is that there's something about the human condition, something about our intrinsic wants, desires and feelings that cause us to not want happiness, but also to also, it's not that Nozick says we don't want happiness, but we want happiness plus a specific state of affairs. So, um, for example, um, I, for one, I'm really glad that football is back live. I love watching football. Um, I'll drop it in because my brother would never forgive me. I'm a huge Reading fan. I was born and bred in Reading. I'm a huge Reading Football Club fan. I, live, I, can't, I can hear the boos already, but I'm a huge Reading fan. Um, and I'm really glad that they're back and I met it. Now, for Bentham and Mill, if I could get pleasure any other way, I shouldn't care. But actually, I get, I want the pleasure that watching football brings me. I want the pleasure that playing sports bring me. But for Nozick, it's also identifying that I don't just want that pleasure. I want to be in that particular circumstance or doing that particular thing in order to 
gain the pleasure. So Nozick is kind of challenging the idea that pleasure alone is what we seek. Um, and I, I think that that's a useful way of just tying those ends. And as I said, I sometimes find that making the link between Nozick and how he, why he's challenging Bentham is a bit tricky. So, so I'm, I hope you don't mind me jumping in there a little bit. Um, yeah, and then, so if I just start to preference, which is what I come up with, so this is Nozick, but also Singer comes in a little bit with as well. And this is, um, it's still called utilitarianism, but it does very much abandon the classical ideas because it actually, well, it not actually, it throws the hedonism almost out the window to an extent and it shifts from a focus on purely pleasure to preferences. Um, right. And it becomes, in effect, maximizing preferences. And the idea essentially is similar sort of thing. In any situation, we should do the thing that is going to maximize the preferences rather than the pleasure of most people. Um, I think as an, as an essential and a basic understanding that that's pretty much what preference utilitarianism is. As far as I'm aware, and again, these aren't necessarily explicitly on the spec, but you do also get act and rule versions of preference. You get various preference utilitarians who take an act or rule kind of view. But in essence, it boils down to do what makes most people or meets the preferences of most people. Right. And the other example I have here that I forgot to say earlier is there's two if you think of there's two different worlds in world one you're in love with a person and per, they love you back and you have a variety of experiences with this person and those experiences give you a lot of pleasure and in world two you're in love with a, with a person the same person but they only pretend to love you back they hate you in reality and they only put up with you because you buy them things and they cheat on you on a regular basis but you never find out in your whole life that they're cheating on you now if you're looking from an outsider's perspective you always want to choose world one. But in reality, you're getting the same pleasure from both worlds. And you can even one-up it and say, let's say you have better experiences in world two. You still choose world one because it's more than just pleasure. You want to actually be loved back, even if you'll never know you're not loved back. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really good um, an, a illustration of um, Nozick in a, almost a, a real, real sense, as it were, yeah. Right, yeah, no, that, so that is the difference between preference and hedonistic utilitarianism, uh, in essence. Is there anything else you need to think we should say about preference utilitarianism? Um, I mean, I don't know, because, I mean, it's given it's given a little bit of reference on this. I'm just trying to keep it spec-focused, and for me, I mean, um, I mean, I think, in essence, that's what it is. I mean, the only thing is, obviously, the only thing I think I want to say is talk about the critiques of, but I, I think that's, that's where we're going with the rest of it anyway. So I think just in understanding what preference utilitarianism, what preference utilitarianism is, I think that's exactly where we're at. So yeah. Right, well, for me, I guess the only thing I'd like to talk about some more is if it's okay with you, could we go over Mill's proof of utilitarianism again, just one more time, just to explain it a bit more in detail. Yeah, so um, I think it's just one of those things um, you know, that it could come up for those doing the AQA paper. And I realise there are other papers and other qualifications which use the same subject material. But they could ask you about Mill's proof in particular, because it is on the spec. Um, and um, I think it'd be useful just to go through that a little bit. So what you've got there is Mill's proof, really, this is Mill's proof that happiness is the good um, and the good to all people. Um, and it's in essence the proof that Mill gives that utilitarianism is correct. Um, and it's, um, it starts off with the idea that, Mills, you know, that happiness is a good to individuals. And we know this inductively because we observe that humans and other people desire 
happiness. Um, and he kind of goes up, it's the idea that, and he uses the analogy with vision and he says that something is visible because it can be seen. Therefore, something is desirable because it is desired. And what we see from observation is that people desire happiness. Um, and he goes on to argue that, look, even though you might say, well, actually, I observe a chocolate cake. I, no, sorry, I desire a chocolate cake and I desire um, to be outside and be closer than two meters away from my friends. Um, actually, Mill would argue that all the roots of all of those practices, behaviors and desires is that you want to be happy. So this is kind of where he's saying, look, happiness is what we desire. He then goes on to say, look, if each individual desires their own happiness, then they will also want the collective or aggregate happiness of all people. Because I want to be happy and others want to be happy. Therefore, there is a sense of an aggregate happiness. And therefore, this is what leads Mill to say, therefore, happiness is the good that people desire. And I think that's just useful to understand that as, a, as an element of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of Mill's proof in summary, just to help, just to re-emphasize, because I think that is a bit that sometimes gets a little bit tricky. I hope I've done it justice, but there we go. No, I think that was that was really well explained. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way of summarising it, definitely. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I, you can tell I'm 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 all animated. I'm obviously Ryan and I are on Zoom, so he can see me. I'm, I get really animated. This is how I teach. I'm really I really I'm really into it now, and and I'm I'm now going to sit stewing in my lounge, probably talking to my cat and going. What do you think? And he won't respond and I'll get very despondent. But there we go. Yeah, no, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been really good to join you. Uh, I'd love to have you on another episode of the podcast. Oh, this has been absolutely lovely. fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Matt. And I'll see you week. Cool. You too. Take care. Thank you all for listening to The Things You Thought You Knew, the A-Level Philosophy Podcast. Uh, thanks again to Matt for appearing on the podcast. He's going to be joining me again next week. We'll be discussing issues with utilitarianism. Um, I had a really good time being joined by Matt today. Uh, he's a, it was wonderful listening to how he teaches, and that, he was talking about how uh, the way he teaches and how he's really animatic, uh, animated, and it's really nice for me and hopefully for some of you guys who are listening along to see a bunch of different teaching styles. Everyone who's been on the podcast teaches in a slightly different way, and of course they teach slightly differently to the teacher who I have back at, at my college. So it's, it's really wonderful to see all the different ways people teach the same subject. Um, again, this podcast, you can find us on Instagram at The Things You Thought You Knew. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, The Things You Thought You Knew. We're on Twitter at You Thought You Knew. Uh, we've got our own website, www.thethingsyouthoughtyouknew.co.uk. Uh, the, the cover art for this podcast was done by the wonderful Grace Bulchin, who you can find on Instagram at jinx.artx. I'm really looking forward to the next episode of the podcast. I uh, hope you, t- you are as well, and I hope you have a great week. Stay safe out there.